what we do is we use computer vision to extract out biomarkers from the face. And we get a variety of different things, including heart rate and heart rate variability. And in order to objectively quantify psychological stress, we feed the biomarkers of heart rate and heart rate variability into a neural network. And this neural network has been trained on tens of thousands of people from well over a hundred countries, you know, all ethnicities, et cetera. And it can accurately, without even having to have seen an individual before, then indicate what their psychological stress is at that moment in time. Welcome back to Startup Health Now, the podcast where we celebrate the entrepreneurs and innovators who are transforming health. I'm your host, Logan Plaster. There's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot in business. You can't manage what you can't measure. It's a quote attributed to Peter Drucker, the famed management consultant, and it spawned who knows how many KPIs, OKRs, and quarterly rocks. But if the saying is true in management, it's even more true in clinical medicine. In most areas of healthcare, this is self-evident. You gotta measure it to manage it. Yet there are still swaths of care that are delivered by some version of trial and error. Dr. Bashir Saab is my guest today. He came up as an academic researcher. I think it's safe to say he loves measuring, loves gathering hard data and proving that he has found causation, not just correlation in his work. So when his research introduced him to the modern world of mental health diagnosis and mental health care, he was taken aback by what he saw as a lack of solid objective measurements. How could you help someone with anxiety, for instance, if you couldn't accurately measure their anxiety before and after a treatment? That is the thorny challenge that Dr. Saab is tackling with his startup, Mobio Interactive. I'll let him explain just how his research led to a solution that provides those objective measurements, but I'll just say that they came up with a tool and platform that is incredibly accessible and scalable. I hope you enjoy this conversation and we'll be posting the full video from this interview on our YouTube channel as well, so go check it out. Enjoy. Dr. Bashar Saab, CEO and Chief Scientist at Mobio Interactive, thanks for joining me for Startup Health Now. Thanks, Logan. Happy to be here. Where are we catching you? Where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from an old island known as Bali in Indonesia, which is close to the headquarters of our company in Singapore. One of the things I love about doing this show is getting to connect with uh, founders from so many different countries. In Startup Health, we, we work with folks from 29 different countries. I know you're not from Bali, but just this is a, this is a global effort that we're on to, to come together and meet these major health moonshots. So excited that you could join the show from Bali. Um, you know, you're working on this global challenge of mental health diagnostics and, and care, and you're taking a really fresh look at it and uh, have an interesting angle. So I just want to start with what is Mobio Interactive? Give us the elevator pitch, and then we'll kind of pull back and go macro on the challenge. Yeah. Mobio Interactive is focused on introducing objectivity into how we measure the treatment of mental illness. And we put that into practice by using it to establish in real time what is the efficacy of the interventions that we deliver to patients. And so we have a huge uh, pipeline of interventions uh, for a variety of different CNS disorders. And we use our objective biomarkers that we obtain at scale through computer vision using the smartphone camera and AI to then use biomarkers to get objective assessments of stress. Um, and use stress as a proxy for how well patients are responding to treatment. And we partner with hospitals, telehealth providers, um, 
payers and pharma companies around the world. Nice. So I mentioned at the top that you're the CEO and chief scientist. Not many of the CEOs that I interview are chief scientists. So give me a little bit of your background and how it led to your sort of new understanding of this gap in mental health care. I'm a neuroscientist. I did my PhD in, um, at the Collaborative Program of Neuroscience at the University of Toronto, and I did my, my work at Mount Sinai Hospital. And this work was really focused on understanding the, um, the role of a particular protein. I won't get into the details, but this role of this protein in learning memory. But along the way, I accidentally made a discovery for how the motivation to explore, so like curiosity, is actually molecularly linked to the, the how quickly we learn. And, and this was kind of the first time that somebody went down this road. And then that led me to open my own laboratory at the Psychiatry Hospital in Zurich, focusing more deeply on the circuits of the brain that link the motivation to explore and the efficiency of learning. Um, and at that time, I also was able to uncover that the circuitry underlying exploration is also closely linked to mental illness. If you look across the spectrum of mental illnesses, you see that a very common symptom is a dearth of exploratory behaviors. And that may be because people are no longer rewarded from the usual type of rewards we get when we explore and discover new things, or it could be because they just lack the, the motivation to do so um, for whatever reason. So how did that really got us thinking? Yeah. yeah. How did you discover this link between the motivation to explore and the circuitry of the <laughs> It's one of these funny things in science. So we had, you know, done many, many, many types of experiments with a, a genetically modified animal that I had created, a, a, a mouse that had elevated levels of a protein called neuronal calcium sensor one in a very small region of the hippocampus called the dentate gyrus. And we know that this part of the hippocampus, uh, the hippocampus is part of the brain. Um, we know that this dentate gyrus region is really important for pattern recognition, understanding when you're in novel environments, et cetera. And increasing the level of this protein had the effect of increasing the plasticity of these neurons. So they could acquire information more quickly. We showed that both in behavioral experiments as well as with recordings directly inside of the, the brain of the, of the animals. But there was always this one piece of data that we didn't quite understand, and that was that when we brought these animals into novel environments, they spent a lot more time rearing up on their hind legs. Um, and we just sort of wrote it off as there's some difference in how they respond to novel environments. And then after about a year of just sort of sitting on that data, I also noticed that, well, this didn't happen when the lights were on, because it's another set of behavioral experiments we can do when the lights are on. And mice are out nocturnal animals, lights tend to be a fearful stimuli. And, and so we started thinking, well, maybe their motivation to explore is being suppressed by fear. Maybe we're actually like tapping into the motivation to explore. So we designed a whole nother set of experiments. And then it really bore out the fact that yes, how these animals respond to um, novel environments, the degree to which they explore is really important. And in fact, that was the driving factor for why the brain was so much more responsive to learning. And, um, and yeah, it, it actually made headlines all over the world and various newspapers. Yeah. Wow. Well, wow. so, so how did you make the connection to say, okay, this, these lab experiments are, are fascinating. We're understanding a piece of the brain here. Uh, how did you go about extrapolating that to like, we can build a consumer facing company and product? Well, uh, yeah, many steps in between. 
to say big picture, I was always amazed at how as a scientist, you know, I've worked even as an academic in hospitals all the time, uh, except for a brief stint during my postdoc. And I was always amazed that for me to publish a paper, I always had to support any type of conclusion I made with objective data in order to eliminate certain confounds. But my my dear and fabulous colleagues uh, on the clinical side were making life-changing decisions for patients really without much, if any, objective data, objective data at all. They use data, of course, and, the, and they're very responsible people. But the fact of the matter is there just aren't any good tools to tell us objectively how people feel. And, and so I thought that was really unfortunate for them. Give me an example on the mental health side of where we just have to, on the clinical side, we have to operate without as much objective data as we would like. Well, I mean, the medical standards right now are these psychological scales and they're, they're cleverly designed and they're tested to, to in order to show various types of validity in the context in which they're used. But at the end of the day, they are self-reports. Um, and you try to get at questions of, you know, how depressed does somebody feel, how anxious, anxious are they, how much stress do they have, et cetera, by asking them some indirect questions about like what's been going on in the past couple of weeks of their life, et cetera. Um, and these are pretty good tools, but they're not objective by any sense. In fact, they're subjective by definition. In fact, they're designed to be subjective. And the problem with subjective tests in this nature is that they're biased and they tend to fail precisely when you need them to work most. So as soon as you introduce an intervention, people expect to get better, or they start hoping to get better, they're wishing that, mm -hmm. and you can run into something called the expectation bias, which is related to the placebo effect. Um, and then the other major issue with them is that they cannot be delivered at any sort of useful cadence. And you can give them maybe once a month, you know, if you're really pushing it every couple of weeks, but then you run into these repeat effects. And so it's they're really blunt and I mean, they're imprecise and inaccurate tools. And if you compare this to the types of tools that we have in other forms of medicine, you know, like being able to image tumors or being able to like, you yeah. know, yeah. you know, like see what you're doing as you're doing surgery. I mean, that's pretty objective information right there. Yeah. It's it it's it's it holds the entire field back. Psychiatry is handicapped because there's no tools to, to really measure what's going on. And, and, you know, sometimes psychiatrists say you can't do this, or they, they say, I need to, you know, speak with my patient to find out what they really feel. And then I, I, I asked them, I like, how do you know the patient's being honest with you? And they might take a little bit of offense at that because they like to think that there's a good relationship between them and their patient. Probably usually there is. But then I asked them, how do you know the patient's being honest with themselves? And, and they sort of realize, well, that's true. And then we get back into the question of, well, we try to indirectly figure out what's going on. And then you're just back at the same place where, look, it's, it's, a, it's a bad tool. So, you know, let's use modern technology to go beyond that. That's a good segue to the million dollar question, which is how does Mobio Interactive bring objectivity to mental health diagnostics and bring it down to the non-PhD level here? So the... The simplest way to think about it is that when you look at somebody, you can already get an idea for how they feel. And so there's information that's contained in the human face that exposes our inner emotions. And, you know, you can tell like, yes, good friend of yours, how you doing? They're like, I'm doing great. But you can tell that they're not doing great. You know, like there's information there. 
In addition to that, um, the homeostasis and, 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 and the regulation of the body is very much dependent upon what's going on in the brain. And one really profound way that this manifests is through the autonomic nervous system's regulation of the heart through the sinal atrial node. So basically, there's fibers that come down from your brain, they poke into your heart and they're able to control your heart rate. And they do so with various different levels of um, at different time courses. And because of that heart rate variability, as many people probably already know, is a pretty good proxy for the level of somebody's stress. Do you have very variable heartbeat? It's kind of happy and go lucky. And if your heart rate is very low, then it's more you know, stringent and, and you're more stressed. And that proxy is sort of true, right? That, 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 that relationship isn't quite, it's not quite that simple. Um, but nevertheless, the information's in there. So what we do is we use computer vision to extract our biomarkers from the face. And we get a variety of different things, including heart rate and heart rate variability. And in order to objectively quantify psychological stress, we feed the biomarkers of heart rate and heart rate variability into a neural network. And this neural network has been trained on tens of thousands of people from well over a hundred countries, you know, all ethnicities, et cetera. And it can accurately, without even having to have seen an individual before, then indicate what their psychological stress is at that moment in time. When you say accurate, talk to me about how you've been able to prove this out for, for the market. So you always have to benchmark in the end to self-reports, right? This is something that's catch-22. Mm. So well over 80% of the time, the neural network will guess what an individual guesses. Now, we also have evidence that demonstrates that the neural network is actually more accurate. So even more accurate. And the question is, well, how do you do that, right? If you always have to benchmark to the self-reports. And the answer is, well, you don't always have to go back to the self-reports directly. So you can imagine circumstances where the self-reports, if they're not working that well, right? If, if somebody's lying to themselves or they're subject to the, you know, the expectation bias as an example, then does the neural network also fall for that trap? Is it subject to the and the bias? And the answer is no. So we've run experiments and that, that show that here people are reliably responding to an expect bias, but the neural network is saying no. So that people re report their stress going down, but we know that it's a, it's a placebo effect. And the, so it's always and the neural network shows that it's that, that their stress is going up. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So your, your immediate expectation of stress doesn't actually change your level of stress. Mm. It just, just masks it. Um, and then, then the other, I think even more profound thing that we've done that shows that the neural network is, is much more accurate is when we use pre and post measures, we give somebody some therapy before and after we do a measurement, either self-report or we do the measurement of the, the, the neural network. We do both at the same time actually, but then we take those data separately and we train algorithms to then predict what forms of therapy are best for each patient. Got it. And the neural network is way better. Like the data that comes out of the neural network is way better at training and a second algorithm to then predict what therapy is best for the patient. Interesting. So you, you start to get hints from the self-reports, but it's much faster, much more efficient, much more efficacious if you use the objective data. Fascinating. So what's the experience like for, for the user? You say that you can use a camera phone, computer vision. So I'm taking basically a video of my face. Is, is that the baseline there? Yeah. Yeah. It's not, I would say the greatest experience uh, at, at first. Like a lot of people are not 
super comfortable uh, taking videos of themselves. So we tried to make it as unobtrusive as, as possible, right? So we shade out your face. So you don't really see your face that well. And then we put these riddles on the screen instead of your face while you're, you know, for the majority of the scanning time, it takes 30 seconds uh-huh. um, and you need to hold still. So I think in, in a way that might be therapeutic just on its own. Mm. And uh, um, and then you you listen to an audio recording and the audio recording uh, could be psychoeducation, could be CBT training, could be uh, mindfulness or some other form of meditation. And then you do the, the selfie scan again. And, um, and then we get that Delta. Right, we okay. get the delta for how that specific piece of information uh, impacted your level of stress in an objective sense. I see, I see. Okay, so not only are you giving me this diagnostic report, you're actually testing a certain type of therapy. That's correct. Yeah, and in fact, you know, that's an important thing for engagement. Right, if we were to just give somebody a tool so that they can, you know, use the phone to. To scan themselves, it probably get bored of it after a few weeks. And it, it just tells me I'm stressed, so you're not really helping me yet. Well, the idea is we tell your doctor, right? Yeah. So we link the data to your healthcare professional, and then they can talk leverage that as, yeah. as they make clinical decisions. Talk to me about that. So you've got the you've got the tool. You've got maybe a, a CBT or some sort of a mindfulness thing that could be helping you in the moment. But then mm-hmm. my reading comes back that I have elevated uh, anxiety, stress, or maybe even something much more severe. Um, what happens then? So there, there are different contexts in which we use the, the product. And the first thing I should do is describe uh, how the product works. So there's really two parts to it. There's a, what we call the base platform, and this contains the selfie scans, self-reports, all those tools, as well as a bunch of wellness content, you know, mindful leadership, planking exercises, uh, stuff for relaxation and resilience. Then after if prescription is given, we can unlock these step-by-step interventions. And these interventions are clinically validated in specific patient populations. So we have interventions for cancer patients, for uh, traumatic brain injury, for chronic pain, for postpartum depression, and and others. Um, and so if you're a patient right now, the most common way that you'll get access is is through the hospital. And the hospital will, will give you the opportunity to use our product on DTX, the base platform, um, when you're on your wait list, right? Because everybody has to wait for some medical service, you know, particularly psychiatric services. In that time, we serve as a really fantastic stopgap that can then reduce the symptoms of these patients um, and start to collect data that can be useful for the healthcare professional and how they treat the patient. How have your clinical partners been responding to this? I mean, I don't have to tell you that the healthcare community can be slow to adopt new technologies. They have their ideas about how things should be handled. And it's good oftentimes to not be on the bleeding edge of a new therapy and sort of, you know, be judicious about it. But how have people responded so far? It's been, I mean, it's been fantastic. Um, the, The whole concept of using OmniTX is a stopgap for patients was driven by our, our clinical uh, partners, actually. So st- the hospitals that have come to us and said, you know, we're on a mission to do something for our patients when they're, when they're on wait list. We're on a mission to to, to 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 be able to help more people in the community than we currently can due to you know, limited funding or bandwidth issues. And we come in at a very low-cost, scalable solution that's already got, you know, plenty of, of clinical data behind it across the full s- spectrum of mental illness severity. Yeah. So, you know, we're still at this point dealing with the 
incoming demand from the early adopters, right? The fantastic institutions like the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, um, Institute of Mental Health in Singapore, you know, th these institutions that are really quite innovative and like to go forward. Um, and then with regards to the development of our interventions and clinically validating those, that's also been primarily optimistic on our on our part. So we have the head thoracic surgeon at Memorial Sloan Ketting come to us and saying, you know, I can give my patients the best surgery room, the best equipment, the best drugs. I mean, this, this is the best, I mean, MSKCC is like the best cancer place in the world, right? But she says, when I come to the mental health, I have nothing. And she doesn't have the training for it either, right? She's a, she's a surgeon. So, you know, she's like, I want to see if your tool, which I know it was already been clinically validated within Canada with this other population can also be used um, with my lung cancer patients. And so, so that's, you know, pretty, pretty much how things get started, right? Yeah. They, they come to us. I'm a former academic, so pretty easy for them to work with. I understand, you know, what their motives are. Um, and, and, and we can talk eye to eye on a lot of things. So, so the response has been really good. Now, what's it going to be like when we actually initiate a proper growth phase and we go out there and start knocking on doors? Mm. I don't know. I mean, we're going to have to have a proper strategy and get some savvy people in place for that. But right now. Yeah. We're just trying to do a good job dealing with those those early adopters that have come to us. When do you see that growth uh, phase coming along? Well, the, the day we close the next uh, the next fundraising round. Got it. So you do, I'm, you do, I'm, yeah. you do, dealing with those initial partners, raise a fund, do your growth do your growth phase, and then uh, I mean I would imagine that there are so many applicable communities, uh, patient populations that could benefit from this. How do you think through, uh, you don't have to deal with this just yet, but can't boil the ocean here. W where do you focus? So that, that that's a great question. I mean, we are very much a globally focused company with a global mission. We want our solutions to reach, uh, you know, hundred percent of the world's population, right? Irrespective of, of, and, and we think we can get there one day, right? But you know, we first need to build, I think, a sustainable business. And so our primary markets are developed markets, US, Canada, Singapore, and there are robust healthcare systems. There's a lot of opportunity, particularly for healthcare adoption, particularly in mental health, you know, for platforms like ours that have a lot of clinical validation behind them and, and, and novel technology. So we've, we'll really focus on these few markets at first, and then I think after we have, um, you know, you know, nice margins, then we can really start pushing into other regions of the world. Um, but we have already done some work in, you know, Brazil and Argentina, um, Bahrain, you know, like various other places, um, and eventually Africa and India. You know, you know, you represent a really interesting founder profile, having come from uh, academics, and. It makes me think about the thousands and thousands of researchers and other academics out there who have the seed of an idea or something amazing happening in the lab, and they think that maybe there's a business here, but they don't have that particular experience. So I wonder if you could, uh, if you have any words of advice, words of wisdom from the last few years that you would give to a researcher in that situation who says, I think maybe I have something here, but that's, you know, business really isn't my uh, experience. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the next few steps should be. Well, it's, 
it, it's a lot, a lot of it's going to be dependent on their personal lives. So, um, most academics that decide to start a company don't leave academia, right? They, they continue on as an advisor or they're, you know, one co-founder of many, but they keep their job. Mm -hmm. I quit and focused full time on the company because I felt I had no other choice, right? I felt this is just so compelling and the opportunity for impact is so much bigger, right? It's politicians and business people make all the decisions on how technology is implemented, right? It's not the scientist at the end of the day. So I wanted to be in the driver's seat after 15 years in academia and completely in the driver's seat. So um, I was able to make that decision because I don't have any dependence. Uh, I, could t I could be a little bit more risky um, but if, if we hone in on things that I did wrong, I probably should have secured our first funding round before I quit. Uh, in the end, it worked out. We got, we got funding and, and, uh, we were, we were able to build a company, but it was, you know, it's more stressful than it needed to be, right? You can, you can put together your, your first small, you know, um, you know, like pre-seed or angel round while you're still working, I think. And then once you've got some good capital in the bank, then, then quit your job. That would be my main advice if you're considering full a full departure from academia. What what advice would you give to your younger self in, in terms of just the challenges of developing a um, digital therapeutic? Well, I think you know you want to be careful on the types of tools that you use to build the product and see how these things evolve over time. Mm. So, you know, we we are in the we're, we're now starting to move away from the original platform that we started with. And at the time it was the right choice. Um, and I don't really know if we could have moved away earlier because we, you know, so many things and so many priorities, but, um, you just want to be really careful when you start, you know, like what tools you're actually going to use to build this thing. And if you're not a programmer, you want to consult with many different people to identify what that is. Um, you know, I, I, we probably didn't spend enough time thinking about it. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be okay in the end, but that's just something you do want to be careful of. Yeah. Very nice. Besh, that's the time we have today. I really appreciate you, you calling in from Bali and taking the time with me. We could go on a lot longer about your journey from, you know, curious mice to helping people diagnose mental health uh, issues at home and get the care they need and understand how they're feeling beneath the surface, even when they're maybe not sure of it themselves. So just fascinating work. And uh, I really want to uh, watch your progress over the next year or two. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it as well. Thanks, Logan. Yeah, Besh, be well, and thank you for your time. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. We'll be back again with another episode next week. <laughs>